You are freer than you think. It's like the ultimate form of freedom. You expound upon that freedom to develop on this planet. True freedom comes from within. It's the ability. Thinking to myself, I can help you or I can destroy you. Man is a two-time felon. I work really hard and I've been, a, I've been a life learner. When things are feeling tough, let yourself be surprised. The world favors risk-taking. Welcome, welcome, welcome to the Freedom Pact. My guest on the podcast today is Christopher Kazor, the author of Jordan Peterson, God and Christianity, The Search for a Meaningful Life. Christopher, welcome to the Freedom Pact podcast. Thank you very much. Great to talk to you. It's a pleasure to have you. And I thought it was definitely the right time to have you on. I just yesterday uh, spoke to Tammy Peterson and she had plenty to say about, you know, her relationship with religion and um, alluded to some of Jordan's uh, uh, attitude towards religion. So it's the perfect time to get you on. Um, but let's kick it off. Let's try and define everything for everyone who may be brand new to the subject, maybe brand new. Maybe they're thinking, who's Jordan Peterson? Um, so let's start <laughs> off with that. When did you first stumble across Jordan Peterson, uh, his lectures, and why? what was it about him that you know made you want to write a book about him? Yeah, you know, I don't remember exactly the very first time I heard one of his lectures or read anything he wrote, but I do remember uh, coming across his lectures on the book of Genesis. And I was really fascinated by them uh, for a number of reasons. One of them is that he is a secular psychologist with no formal training in religious studies or in biblical studies. And yet I thought he was providing these incredibly insightful and important readings of Genesis. And what he was trying to do was to show how the text of Genesis actually has lots of applications in real life in our contemporary society. So rather than thinking of these as just the kind of ignorant musings of nomadic peoples that are totally disconnected from anything contemporary, what he was suggesting is that actually these stories have perennial value. They are classic stories about the human condition. And so they really have something to teach us today. So I found that really fascinating. And it wasn't just the content, but frankly, it was the way he was talking about these things. As you know, I'm sure if you've seen his videos, when he talks about uh, the biblical stories, it's really clear to me that he's thinking it through and he's trying to gain greater insight into what these stories are all about. And also that he shows a great honesty, I think, in terms of wrestling with, you know, what do these really mean for us today? So for those reasons and others, I became really fascinated with this thought. And so I watched a lot more of his videos as have millions and millions and millions of people. And so, you know, the more I, I got into his thought, the more I saw these really fascinating overlaps with the uh, Christian tradition. So, so basically I, I began to write about it. I wrote an article about his views on Adam and Eve, and then I wrote another article on Cain and Abel. And before you know it, I, it was like a, a snowball turning into a snowman. And uh, along with my co-author, Matthew Petrusik, we ended up putting together this book about his thoughts. So that's sort of how I came to it. And um, so I'm really happy to be able to talk about it today with you. There's a quote I jotted down from the book. I think it was at the, uh, you know, towards the start of the book. It said that Peterson is doing for this generation what Joseph Campbell did for the previous one. Uh, I wonder if you could just expand on, on what was meant by that. Sure. So Joseph Campbell wrote uh, about the hero with a thousand faces. And what he what he meant by that is if you look at the 
classic stories from around the world, all the different myths and folk stories that we find all over the place, we find kind of recurring patterns in the human condition. And it kind of makes sense, right? Because as human beings, we are in this human condition and there are patterns to it, right? There's there's birth, there's growth, there's development, there's suffering, there's death, there's all these things that are really universal all, all over the world. And so part of what Joseph Campbell was trying to do is look at the deep commonalities. And really what he's doing is similar to what Carl Jung did in his understanding of myths. And of course, Jordan Peterson is a Jungian psychologist. So he's drawing on the thought of Carl Jung. And so there's this real um, way in which what Peterson's doing now is a sort of representation in, I think, a much more sophisticated way than Joseph Campbell ever did of these kind of classic stories and how they can uh, give us insights for today. So I have uh, actually a lot more respect for what Jordan Peterson is doing than uh, what Campbell was doing, because I think Peterson brings to uh, these uh, stories, uh, you know, a deep understanding of contemporary psychology. I mean, you know, he's a psychology professor, so he really knows, you know, contemporary psychology, obviously very, very well. And so I think that really adds a lot of power to his interpretation of these stories. Mm. Yeah. And, and Jordan is a very, very captivating man. I think he can talk about pretty much anything and, you know, people are, you know, zoned in and they're listening um you know i i have um i know someone i went to university with who was you know uh, quite a strong atheist and i even you know saw him watching these you know biblical lectures and and talking about how they might relate to to life in general he just seems to be able to captivate people in this way that you know it's a it's a very rare thing to be able to do that um i was i was joking with jordan's wife yesterday that when i was at university i used to tell people that um, my lecturer was Jordan Peterson because I just used to spend my my evenings watching him on YouTube. Uh, what do you think it is about Jordan that's able to just capture people's attention? I'd say it's a combination of things. Um, one of them is that he is an honest person. And so when he's talking about these issues, he is willing to say things that he thinks are true. And sometimes this gets him into hot water and there are people who attack him and are outraged that he thinks whatever he thinks. But I think people can really respect someone who says, who speaks their mind. And it's such a, a stark contrast to so many, you know, spin doctors and White House press secretaries. And they're always, you know, basically lying or if, if not lying, like really, really, really bending the truth. And uh, Jordan Peterson seems uh, kind of on the opposite extreme of all that. So that's very refreshing. I think it's also true that he is someone who exhibits a real care and concern for the well-being of other people. So it's pretty clear that he really wants to help people and he really cares about suffering and he cares about these people that have lost all meaning in their life. And so when you get a sense, as I do, that this person really cares and really is a person who loves other people and wants to help them, then that also adds a kind of um, power to the message. And then a third thing, of course, is that he is a quite learned person. I mean, he's obviously uh, a great expert in, in psychology. He's a full professor. He's published, I think, over 100 scholarly articles. And then if you look at his work, he also does a great job integrating lots of different things. So you have uh, you know, Russian novels by Dostoevsky, and you have uh, the German philosophy of Nietzsche, and you've got um, obviously the biblical stories and you have the empirical science, you have evolutionary theory. And he's bringing all these 
different voices into the conversation, which I have a huge respect for. And, and really, you know, for me, he reminds me of this uh, medieval thinker, Thomas Aquinas, who kind of had a similar way of bringing together, like for Aquinas, he'd bring together like Stoic philosophy, Islamic thinking, Jewish thinking, certainly the thinking of the Greek Aristotle, that was a huge influence for him, Christian wisdom, Augustine, Neoplatonic thinking, and he would bring it all together and not just as a sort of random hodgepodge, but really in a kind of synthesis, a kind of unity. And so, you know, I think that's terrific. And that's something that I try to do in my own life is to try to learn wherever I can from whatever sources of wisdom I can. And if it's, you know, contemporary psychology, great. If it's stoic philosophy, great. If it's Jewish thinking, great. If it's Islamic or Christian thinking, great. I mean, where, wherever I can find insight, you know, that's what I try to do. So for, for me, Jordan Peterson is really doing that in a really interesting and excellent way. Mm. Well, I know Jordan always says that he tries to live as if God exists. And there's still question. Everyone wants to know the answer to the question. I see it in the comment section on all his, uh, his lecture videos. And uh, I'll pose the question to you then. Does Jordan Peterson believe in God? <laughs> well, I'll give the same answer that he gives, as you I'm sure know. He says, you know, I live as if God exists. And in the book, actually, I argue that in a way that is a faith. Mm -hmm. So what I mean is, uh, if you want to have faith, it seems to me what you should try to do is live as if God exists. And that is, in a way, trusting God. And in a way, that is already having a kind of implicit faith. And so if you live as if God exists, the next question it seems to me would be, well, has God, at least allegedly, given any sort of guidance or revelation about how to live? And so Peterson's answer to that seems to me to be pretty clear. He seems to think that Jesus of Nazareth is, if not God in the flesh, at least a kind of archetype of the highest and best that a human being can be. And so if you kind of combine what, what he says so far, so you live as if God exists and God somehow is revealed in Jesus of Nazareth. Well, then the next question for me would be, well, what does Jesus of Nazareth have to say about how to live? And it seems to me that, that his message is really that we should love God with our whole heart and we should love our neighbor as ourselves. And so that, it seems to me, if you start living that way, wow, you're really going far down the road towards what might be called explicit faith. And then the next step would be, of course, to say, well, um, Jesus talked about a church. So, okay, well, what church, if any, is the church that Jesus of Nazareth founded and abides in? And so, you know, that's a question of, of, of explicit faith. And, and again, I don't know where Jordan Peterson's going to go with that. Uh, it seems to me that he's a person who's really seeking. He's a person who's after knowing the truth about things. And so it seems to me, if, if you're that kind of person and you really do seek and you try to figure out the truth, that you're going to move closer and closer to the truth. And where that's going to end, you know, God only knows. Yeah, I know Jordan has quite a cult-like following and, and, and you know, there are some really diehard fans that I think would follow Jordan to the ends of the earth if they, you know, <laughs> if, if they had to. And they may be thinking now, listening to this, they're thinking, well, I want to, you know, I want to, following Jordan's footsteps, I want to live as if God exists. But let's say these people, they don't believe in God. They have no religion, but they want to follow Jordan's way. They want to act, you know, live as if God exists. And they're thinking, well, where do I start? What would you say to those people? Well, one of the things that Peterson says, which I have enormous respect for, 
is to tell the truth or at least not lie. And I think that's a great place to start is start off by saying what you think is true. And I might add, say it with love, right? Because sometimes you might have to say something that people don't like. <laughs> and so you should try to, you know, not needlessly offend people or something, but to, to speak the truth as you see it. And, and more than that, even to live in the truth. In other words, what if you lived in such a way that you followed what you thought was really the highest and best? You know, what if you live that way? And if you try to live that way, as I try to live, it is very challenging because I find very often, you know, I try to do, I have this kind of ideal, like for instance, I'm married. So I think, you know, what would I be as if I were the best husband I could be? And, you know, I try, but, but I have to say, and my wife will tell you too, I fail. I don't always do that. But it seems to me to have that ideal is something very positive. And I think that even though I do fail often, I'm much better than I would be if I didn't have that ideal. If I just was like, well, whatever. And to try to be a good father. Again, I feel I'm doing that as well as I want to do that. But still, I'm, I think I'm much better than I would have been if I never tried that. So to live as if God exists, it seems to me, you know, a way forward is to not only speak the truth, but try to live in accordance with the truth. And, and part of that is to continue to ask questions, right? To say, okay, does God exist? As you probably know, there's lots of philosophers who have talked about this. Um, and, you know, it seems to me that it's worthwhile looking into that and say, okay, look, what are the very best arguments in favor of God's existence, right? What are the very best arguments against God's existence? Mm. And then to think it through and try to figure out, I mean, at the end of the day, it could be that you can't figure it out. And you say, look, I, I looked into it. And as far as I can tell, I just can't tell. But then the question is, well, how are you going to live? Because you can theoretically be an agnostic and say, I just don't know. But in terms of living, right, you and I have to live either as if God does exist or live as if there is no God. And so Peterson, of course, is trying to live as if God exists. And I have a big respect for that. And maybe theoretically, he's an agnostic. I'm not sure. But I do have respect for the choice to live as if God exists. And so like I, I heard that he now, you know, makes time to pray before meals and things like that. And I know his wife is a person of prayer for sure. And yeah, more power to him. I think that, that the, the effort to live as if God exists, it seems to me, would involve a kind of openness to trying to communicate with God, if there is a God, right, to try to get in touch with that somehow. So I don't know. I think that's a very interesting way forward. And I'm, I'm really, yeah, I'm, I'm honestly, I'm really looking forward to see where this, where, the, where this all goes. Because Peterson seems like someone who's on a journey, and who knows where the journey will end. Um, but I, I'm for I for one am very interested to see where this all you know plays out in the end. Yeah, well, as you meant as alluded to there, um, I know that his wife Tammy re, uh, it reads the Bible every day. Uh, she's you know she's quite thorough um, with the reading of the Bible. So I know there's a fair few copies around the house. Do you? How do you think <laughs> that? Jordan Peterson reads the Bible and how do you think it would differ from, you know, your typical practicing Christian? So when Jordan Peterson reads the Bible, he's looking characteristically for the psychological significance of the Bible. And one way to put that is he's looking at the Bible as a way of illuminating how to live today. And I think this is really intelligent because some people try to read the Bible as if it were a scientific textbook. And I think that's a huge mistake. Um, it'd be a little bit like reading Shakespeare's sonnets as if they were, were a weather report. Like Shakespeare just is not trying to tell you about the weather. 
And so if you're reading the sonnets of Shakespeare as a weather report, you know, and you read sonnet 18, you know, shall I compare thee to a summer's day? Thou art more lovely and more temperate. Rough winds do shake the darling buds of May and summer's lease hath all too short of date. And say, you know, and you look into the weather report and you say, well, May, there's no rough winds. So Shakespeare, you're horrible at telling us about the weather. Like that's just a huge confusion because Shakespeare's not trying to do that. So the authors, for instance, of Genesis are just not trying to do contemporary science. They're not trying and failing. They're just not doing that. So just to give you one example, when it says in Genesis that God created the world in six days and on the seventh day rested, there are some very silly interpreters of the Bible who will say, look, oh, there's seven 24-hour periods. And I know from evolution that that's all false. So obviously the Bible is a bunch of uh, bunk. But again, I think that's, that's really a misunderstanding of the biblical story. So when you're reading the Bible, the story of Genesis, the genre of that is not contemporary science, but rather it's a creation story that's in dialogue with other ancient creation stories. So what is the point of saying that God created the world in seven days? Well, part of the point is seven is this symbol for perfection. The idea is that God created the world in a perfect order. In other words, the world is organized and orderly and intelligible. And that point is different than the other rival creation stories in the ancient world, who thought of the world as arising from a chaotic battle between rival gods. Now, Genesis is not science, but that belief that the world is orderly and intelligible centuries later does give rise to science. In other words, why did people begin to investigate the natural world and try to figure out the order of it? Well, it's because they thought the world was created by God and the world was orderly. And so it made sense to investigate it scientifically to figure out what the order is. But I think that people who you know, try to pit you know, Genesis against evolution and so forth, what, it's a little bit like if I read this text of Genesis and I was like, well, should I um, buy the new iPhone or not? And I'm like searching through the text of Genesis to figure that question out. Like, that's crazy, right? There's no way Genesis is for or against the iPhone 13. It just, it can't be about that. It's crazy. And so in a similar way, Genesis is not for or against evolution. It's just not about that. And so I love the way Peterson reads the text of the Bible in such a way that it's sensitive to the reality that it's not about contemporary science, but it still is about important truths about human life. What would you say to people then who think that if they um, accept and, and follow uh, evolution as fact, if they think, you know, if, if that's their thinking, that they then have to reject any possibility of, of Genesis? What would you say to people who have that sort of conflict in their mind? Yeah, so that's a good, good question. And I think there are some people who have that conflict. And what I would say is that if you, at least according to the Catholic view, it's perfectly compatible to both believe in evolution and also to believe in the Genesis stories. So for instance, people like Pope Francis, people like Pope Benedict, Pope John Paul II, they all accepted evolution, but also accept the idea that Genesis has important truths to teach us. So let me give you an example of what are the important truths of Genesis. Um, according to Genesis, uh, Adam and Eve give rise to the human family. And in other words, you might say the truth that's being communicated there is that every single human being is part of this human family. Every single human being, according to Genesis, is made in the image and likeness of God. So you could put that in more secular terms. You could say, look, Genesis is trying to teach us what I think is a very important truth, 
that all human beings deserve respect, that there's no human being on planet earth that you can just trash and treat as if they're a dog or an animal. No, no, no. All human beings, every single one is part of this human family and all human beings deserve respect. Now, Genesis is teaching us this truth in a sort of narrative, poetic sort of way. But that truth, I think at least, is extremely important and extremely relevant. And it's not a truth that evolution talks about. In other words, you can accept evolution and you might hold the view that there's a kind of hierarchy among human beings so that some races are better than others, right? Or you could accept evolution and reject that view and say, no, no, there's equal human dignity for all human beings. So evolution is neutral with respect to the question of should all human beings be respected or not? But the story of Genesis is, is taking a stand on that question. And it's saying that all human beings are made in God's image. And again, this is different than the rival stories circulating in the ancient world. So some of these other stories would say things like, well, if you're the king or you're the son of the king, if you're in the royal family, well, then you're made in God's image. But if you're just a regular human being who's not in the royal family, you're not. And Genesis is correcting that saying, no, 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 that's wrong. All human beings, male and female, royal and regular, all of them deserve respect. And so again, you know, you and I might agree about that, we might disagree, but, but I think it's at least an important uh, claim that all human beings deserve this basic human respect. And it's a claim that arises in a certain way from the text of Genesis. I think one of the um, examples that's given in the book on that sort of conflict is the, um, with the creation of the earth, is that billions of years uh, science model that everyone is taught versus the, the seven days of creation. And there's that battle between or a battle that may exist in some people's minds between reason and faith, maybe that they are attracted to both or have a desire to, to marry the both. How would you then say to people to, to get that perfect marriage between reason and faith? Or is that possible? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, so some people do think that faith and reason are kind of in this battle and that they're totally opposed to each other. And you have to choose either faith or reason. So an example of this would be Richard Dawkins. Right? He thinks faith and reason are in a big battle, and he chooses reason. And then some you know, fundamentalist preachers say faith and reason are in a big battle, and they choose faith. But I think that's a false dichotomy. I don't think there is a need to choose faith or reason as if they were in a big fight. I think the better way to think about it is that faith and reason are different, but ultimately harmonious. So if we take the example of the uh, seven days of creation versus the fact that the universe is about um, 15.8 billion years old, and there's a long development of things over, you know, billions of years. Um, I think those actually do go together. And here's how. If you interpret the story of Genesis as seven 24-hour days, then there is a conflict. But at least in the Catholic tradition, most interpreters, so Augustine, Aquinas, John Paul II, Pope Francis, I mean, most interpreters in the Catholic tradition do not interpret seven days to mean seven 24-hour periods. So what is it talking about when you talk about the seven days? Well, one way to think about it is that the word seven in the original text is the same word that's used for making a covenant. And so, in other words, the original readers of the text would have been sensitive to that and would have understood that when you talk about the seven days of creation, what you're saying is that God is in a relationship with creation. That is to say that God has ongoing care about the created order, ongoing care about all creation, but in particular, ongoing care for human beings. 
And so that is a truth that is not linked to seven 24 hour periods. And so I, again, I think it's sort of a wooden or a um, needlessly uh, simplistic reading of Genesis to say, oh, seven 24 hour days. Oh, that's in- incompatible with, with evolution. I, again, I think that, that there are some people who read the text that way, but at least in the Catholic tradition, there's no need to do that at all. And most interpreters in the Catholic tradition did not have that kind of wooden, simplistic understanding of what Genesis is all about. And again, this is going way before anyone thought of evolution. This goes way back to figures like Origen, figures like Augustine that are you know centuries old. So this isn't this is not, in other words, a modern way to sort of fit Catholicism with evolution because this predates evolution by centuries. Another one um, that comes to mind, I think, even those of of no faith of anybody, everyone loves this concept of the soul that's taken, yeah. you know, from religion. Everyone, you know, everyone talks about the soul. They say, uh, "This is good for your soul." You know, I think that's everyone right. likes to use that. But what would you say to people? And I think this is you talk about this in the book, and they say that science and and reason disproves the idea of the soul. It's an interesting one because I think, you know, even like I just mentioned there, even atheists, even people with no faith, we all have this, it's all almost, we all want there to be something, something higher, something deeper than just our bodies. Everyone likes to believe in our soul. Yeah, yeah. So if you understand by science, the uh, method of trying to confirm or uh, disprove hypotheses by means of empirical verification, if that's what you mean by science. Well, then science in principle, can't say that a soul exists or that a soul does not exist. Why? Well, because the soul, at least as most people understand it, certainly as I understand it, is an immaterial thing. It's not material. Now, what's not material can't be confirmed or denied by science, because science is all about confirming or denying material things by means of the scientific method. So you might liken science to a metal detector. So if you're at the beach and you lose a ring in the sand and you get out a metal detector, the metal detector is gonna be great at detecting the metal because that's what it's designed to do. But if you lose a diamond in the sand, you can have a metal detector there all day long. It's never gonna detect a diamond because a diamond's not made of metal. So the soul is a non-material thing. And so the process of empirical confirmation can't confirm that it exists or disconfirm it, say it doesn't exist. So why believe in a soul? Well, Thomas Aquinas had an interesting uh, argument about this, and I don't know what you think about this, but I'll run it by you and see what you think. Mm -hmm. He said that we can understand the soul by means of understanding human uh, understanding of things. So let's say you understand that water, water is H2O, and ice is H2O, and steam is H2O. So he would say that your understanding of that transcends your senses. That is to say, if you're looking at water and looking at steam and looking at ice from your vision, these would appear like three different things. Yeah. And the same thing's true for your touch, right? If you touch ice, you touch steam, you touch uh, water, it feels like three different things. But your mind can understand that, no, no, these are actually all the same things. So Aquinas said, look, our understanding transcends the senses, transcends the material. And so if we're going to understand what water is, what that means, or what H2O is, is that there's a unity between our mind and the reality we're understanding. And so if you understand what H2O is, there's a unity between your mind and the reality of H2O. But the unity between your mind and reality isn't a material unity. 
That is to say, when you understand an elephant, you don't get heavier. When you understand what water is, you don't get wetter, right? It's a non-material unity. So Aquinas reasoned that if we can be unified with a non-material thing and have this unity between it in a non-material way, there must be some part of us that isn't merely physical. That isn't merely like our, our eyeballs, our ears, our sense of touch. There must be some element of us that transcends the senses and the material. And so he called that the soul. That's one of the powers of the soul is to understand. And so Aquinas thought that it's not proved scientifically or in terms of empirical verification, but it is something that is philosophically able to be known. And that is one of Aquinas' reasons for thinking that we human beings have this immaterial soul. Wow. I love that, man. That's extremely valuable. I, I, I really enjoyed that answer. That's definitely one I'm going to have to clip and listen to a few <laughs> times and maybe put that one up. That's probably the one of the best arguments I've heard for that. That's uh, I really appreciate that. Um, yeah, it's blown my mind. It's given me a lot to think about. I'm going to have to look at that All one right. up. I love it. Um, some You mentioned these guys earlier, and I'd love to go to this. This is, I believe, in 12 Rules for Life, uh, the original um Jordan references Cain and Abel a couple of times and he keeps going back to their story. So for everyone brand new to this topic, could you just introduce these two brothers and what can they teach us from Jordan's perspective? Yeah, the story of Cain and Abel, you're right, is a story that he loves and returns to again and again. And I'm really indebted to him because I have to say I never really appreciated that story until he kind of broke it open for me and really helped me understand how, how significant it really is. So the story of Cain and Abel begins with uh, two brothers, and they're the first human beings who are born of Adam and Eve. And the two brothers both make an offering to God, and the offering of one of the brothers, uh, Abel, is accepted by God, and the offering of the other brother, Cain, is not accepted by God. And so Cain is very upset about this. He's like, what, you know, what's going on? I'm, I'm really, you know, mad. And, and God says to him, well, look, um, you still have a chance to grow, grow and develop and such. But what Cain does instead is he's so angry and he's so jealous and he's so envious of his brother that he gets him alone. And when the time's right, he murders his brother. And then as a result of this, um, God comes to him and says to him, you know, where's your brother? And he says, famously, am I my brother's keeper? And then God punishes him and causes him to go into exile. So what is this story about? So what Peterson says, which I found very insightful, is that this is really a universal human story. Now, not everyone has a brother, of course, but everyone has people in their lives that they're envious of, right? You look at somebody else and you might say, this person's way smarter than I am, or this person's way more good looking than I am, or richer than I am, or more popular, or whatever. And so what do we do with that? Well, one option is the option of, of Cain. We try to take revenge on that person. And maybe we don't actually physically kill them, but we set ourselves against them. And we're filled with uh, an inferiority complex. And we are angry with them. And we put them down. Because the fact is, you know, all of us are judging other people all the time and seeing whether we're better or worse than they are. But another option, rather than trying to uh, actually or, or in your heart kill somebody, is to be inspired by them, to look at the person who's better than you and say, you know, this person's really better than me 
in this respect or that respect? What could I do to move forward and grow and to be better than I am now? And so for me, Jordan Peterson is, is a person that's like that. Like when I hear him give lectures, I'm like, wow, that's like completely amazing. That's way, 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 way better than anything I could ever do. But I think, okay, well, how could I raise my game? How could I move forward and like learn from what he's doing and, and advance? And even a step beyond that is to say, if someone's better than you, what if we celebrated that, right? Like if your brother is in some way surpassing you, what if, if you really love your brother, wouldn't you say, good for him, that's terrific. I'm really happy that he's so amazing at doing whatever. And doing that is another way of overcoming kind of this fundamental human proclivity to envy. So the story of Cain and Abel, in other words, is not just some stupid, you know, old story and who knows. And it's a story in a way that applies to literally every human being on planet Earth, because there's no one on planet Earth who it doesn't in some way compare themselves to others. And when we start comparing ourselves to others, we can end up despairing, right? Because there's always going to be people better than us. And this can lead us down a rat hole of inferiority and feeling worthless and feeling terrible, but it doesn't need to, right? When you compare yourselves to others, you can learn from them. And you could also try to just appreciate and say, great, I'm glad they're better. And in a way that is what love is about is to appreciate the good of other people and not be filled with envy, but to be happy for them. Say, I'm so happy my brother is taller than I am and better looking than I am and richer. Good for him. That's great. Right. If I really love my brother, that's what I'm going to think. And that's what I'm going to say. And that seems to me is a more healthy attitude than, you know, dwelling on a kind of inferiority with respect to others. Mm. When I first uh, listened to Jordan Peterson's uh, biblical lectures, um, one thing stood out to me and it was the way he talked about the, the flood story. And he, and he brought out the example that there's always something we can do about the, the chaotic uh, waters of life. There's always something we can do. And you can take that from the story. You know, you don't have to necessarily take everything literally uh, in the Bible to be able to get something out of it. And it, it, it reminded me when I was a young kid and I had um, uh, an IT teacher in school and he was, he was religious. And I was young at the time. I thought I was this really smart, edgy guy. I, I just read uh, Richard Dawkins for the first time. And I'll go on record now to say I really don't like Richard Dawkins. Um, <laughs> I think that, you know, I did at the time. I thought it was really cool. But now I've, I'm older. I come to realize that I really don't like anyone whose argument consists of attacking someone else's argument rather than building their own up. I think that just loses you all merit in my opinion um but anyway at the time i thought it was really cool and i'd have these discussions with my teacher and i'd say well reason would say that you know that how could the how could this arc story really happen this could prove it wrong this could prove it wrong and i remember he turned to me he said he said you don't have to take everything literal in the but you don't have to take everything as fact that it really happened just focus on the message and focus on the story and i remember thinking yeah so that's what I'll ask you now. Do we, do we need to necessarily try and take everything for, you know, every word literally in the Bible to be able to truly get something out of his stories? Well, at least if you believe people like Augustine, uh, no. Mm. I mean, Augustine interpreted many passages, especially many passages from Genesis, as what I think they are intended to be, uh, poetical or symbolic. So in the Catholic tradition, at least, we uh, don't 
read scripture as if it's a science textbook or as if it's a, in every respect, a history textbook, but we read it taking into account the different kinds of books that make up the Bible. So the word Bible means books. Mm. And so the different books of the Bible have different genres, different styles, different ways of expressing their message. And so, no, you don't need to at all, at least in the Catholic tradition, think that, well, everything in the Bible is exactly as it's portrayed in the Bible, and there's no poetic license, there's no use of imagery, there's no use of um, deliberate exaggeration. I mean, I think all that's, all that's true. For, so, for instance, take, there's a passage in the Bible that Jesus says, if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. Now, I think it's an insanely stupid way to read the Bible to say, oh, that means I should get a knife out and like literally like, well, no, I mean, Jesus did not mean it's a deliberate exaggeration, right? Yeah. In other words, the point is don't fool around with wrongdoing, right? Say if you're an alcoholic, it's a really bad idea to spend your nights in bars, hmm. right? If you're an alcoholic, <laughs> maybe don't go to bars anymore, right? Certainly don't spend the whole night there because you're putting yourself in a situation where you're going to get in trouble if you have an alcohol problem. So when Jesus says things like, if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out, no intelligent reader of the Bible takes that as actual literal advice. It is a deliberate exaggeration to make a point, right? And that's true, not just of some things Jesus says, that's true throughout the Bible. And that's true of what every um, intelligent person says in conversation, right? I mean, no one takes a, a conversation, say we have a conversation and, and um, you know, let's say we're at a bar, right? And you spill your drink on me. And I laughingly say, I'm going to kill you. And then you go file a police report. Like there's mm -hmm. an attempt on my life. That's, that's crazy, right? I mean, if you're an intelligent understander of conversation, you know, I'm not actually making a, a murder threat when I'm, you know, laughingly say, I'm going to kill you. So when we read the Bible, we have to read it intelligently. We have to take into account the different styles that are used in the Bible, because this Bible's not all written by one person. But if we do that, I think the sort of... Uh, troubles some people have with the Bible really evaporate. They really go away. But one thing I just want to say about Richard Dawkins is um, I remember reading The God Delusion. This was this was a while ago, probably 13 years ago or something. And uh, I, it's funny because I was having a real crisis of faith at the time. I was like, God, I don't know if God exists and I'm really upset. And anyway, so I was in, in a bookstore and I picked it up and I started reading. And I, I read the part where he critiques the five ways of Thomas Aquinas. And that's something I know about because I'm a philosopher. So I've, I've studied that, you know, in a scholarly way. And I read through his critiques, closed the book and put it down. And I felt my faith kind of restored <laughs> because <laughs> his understanding of Aquinas was so silly and so flat footed and so lacking in any real understanding of what Aquinas was saying that I thought, well, if this is the best case for atheism. Well, theism's doing just fine. <laughs> so yeah, I, I, I had my faith restored by the God delusion, you might say. But I will say something about Dawkins further. And that is, I think he's a very fine writer. His prose is actually very, he's a very good writer. And, and I also respect his uh, willingness to say what he thinks is, thinks is true. And I think that's a good thing too. But at the end of the day, his philosophical critiques of uh, religion, Thomas Aquinas, are really not very good. I mean, they, he really doesn't know what he's talking about. And so that makes his critique a kind of straw man uh, attack, you might say. Yeah, it's interesting because just looking at it from both sides, I when you've got people like like Richard Dawkins, I feel like, like I mentioned there, their argument is always to 
criticize the opposite argument and tell you why that's wrong rather than really focus on why they're right but then on the other end of the scale you never see really see people of a you know true faith attack in the other end they just you know they're almost focusing on their own grass you know rather than worrying if someone else's is greener mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah i think that's a i think that's a fair point i mean i actually do enjoy hearing uh scholarly debates about these questions so like for instance uh, there's a guy named William Lane Craig, and he's engaged in many, many scholarly debates with atheists and about, you know, for and against God's existence. So for me, since I'm a philosopher, I kind of do enjoy that. I kind of I kind of appreciate that and like that. Hmm. Um, so I don't know if you've ever looked at those kinds of debates online, you know, with William Lane Craig taking on these these atheists. But if you haven't looked at that, you might you might enjoy that. You might hmm. you might get something out of that. Um, maybe you won't. I mean, obviously, you know, philosophical discussion and debate is not for everybody. Right? There's some people who just think it's just boring and stupid. But you know, I don't know you, but but maybe you might like it. You might enjoy it. So, anyway, you can check that out if you want to. Yeah, I'll I'll, I'll definitely uh, look in look into that more and check it out. So, getting back to Jordan, then, what rules for life do you think go hand in hand with the teachings of the Bible and religion? Yeah. So one of them we've talked about already to tell the truth or at least not lie. So people like Augustine and Thomas Aquinas, for instance, were very explicit about the idea that we should never tell a lie. And they distinguished, of course, between different kinds of lies. So there are some kinds of lies that are very minor. Uh, You might call them white lies. And uh, then there are some lies that are extremely serious. So lies, for instance, that endanger someone else. Or if, if I was in court and I lied under oath in order to get someone convicted of murder, well, that would be like the worst kind of lie. But Augustine and Aquinas totally agreed, and this is not just their view, but of course, if you found in scripture too, that lying is something that we ought to avoid. And part of the reason for that is that lying causes a kind of inner schizophrenia within us. That is to say, if I lie to you, I have to say one thing and then have in my mind something different. So I created myself this kind of inner division. And so when we don't lie, what we're doing is acting with integrity so that what I say and what I believe and hopefully what I do are all in a kind of inner harmony. And that inner harmony, I think, makes us stronger. It helps us to move forward in a better way through life. And it helps us to develop better relationships. Because when I lie, what is happening is I'm presenting something one face to you, but really the reality. So if I'm doing that, what I'm doing is causing a lack of unity between us. And so if there's this lack of unity, that is really another way of talking about a lack of love. Because if I really love you, I want to be honest with you. I want to be upfront with you so that you can know the real me. And likewise, if you want to be friends with me, it's important to tell the truth to me and be honest with me so that we can really establish a kind of common framework and a common ground for our friendship. But lying in a way undermines that common ground. And so that's one example, I think that you know, Peterson's rules very directly overlap with, um, you know, with basic Christian teaching. So Jordan always says to pursue what is meaningful. Uh, Firstly, in your opinion, how do we define meaning? And secondly, what would you say to those people out there now who feel lost and they feel as if their life has no meaning in it and they can't find any? Yeah, that is an awful, awful situation where people feel like their life is meaningless. Um, Part of the wisdom 
that I think Jordan talks about that I think really makes sense is um, to seek goals that are within your powers. So if you think about meaning, one way of thinking about it is, is the Aristotelian way that Aristotle said, everyone acts for an end. And what he meant is, you know, you have a series of goals throughout the day. And I think part of a lack of meaning is not having goals that have real significance. Now, what makes a goal have significance? Well, it could be something helpful to you, but in a certain way, there's even a greater significance if it's not only is helpful to you, but it's helpful for someone else. It makes someone else's life in some way better. And that's another way of talking about love, that what is love? Love is willing the good of the other as other. So if I love you, that means I try to will what's actually good for you. And that involves thinking about who you are, thinking about what you need. And then sometimes it involves self-sacrifice, right? It involves me doing something that costs me a little something. So I'd say when people are looking for meaning, I think one of the fundamental desires of the human heart is to love other people and to be loved by other people. And to have that, it's not just a matter of feeling. It's not just, oh, I feel warm and fuzzy around whoever, but it is a matter of action and decision. So if we choose to do what's good for others, that is an inherently satisfying and meaningful thing for the human heart. And it doesn't have to be some dramatic thing. It doesn't have to be, oh, I'm going to you know, volunteer and go to Haiti and be there for two months. And almost anyone who is in contact with other human beings has on every occasion a chance to love those people. So, you know, you have a roommate, you're at home. You know, what if you just did the dishes just out of love for them, just to make their life a little better? You know, what if you called your mom who's lonely and, you know, doesn't have people to talk to that much? And so you call her and reach out to her. You know, what if you ask the neighbor next door if you could go shopping for her? It seems to me almost anyone who has contact with others is going to have all these opportunities to love them and serve them and make their life a little bit better in some way. And to do that, I think really is deeply satisfying for human beings. There was a, one way to think about it is there was a study at Harvard University and it looked into what makes for human meaning and flourishing. And they did this study of thousands of people. And at the end of the study, the lead researcher said, well, what'd you find? And he said, well, um, the, after all this research, I'd sum it as, up by saying um, that happiness is love, full stop. That if we're going to have a meaningful life, if we're going to be find a happy life, that is ultimately through love. And I think that it can be love of neighbor, yes, but it can also be love of God. And those two things, I think, necessarily go together. And the reason I say that is, if I say I love God, and then I treat other people that are made in the image of God like trash. Well, there's a fundamental disconnect there, right? If I love God, I should also love the image of God. And so from a Christian perspective, at least, the good news is that meaning and happiness are actually embedded or opportunities for meaning and happiness are actually embedded all over in everyday life, mm -hmm. right? From anything to making your room, cleaning up your room. I mean, that, that can be a, an act of love um, to, you know, doing the dishes, to being kind and polite to people, all these things are acts of love. So really pretty much all day long, there's all these opportunities for meaning and happiness kind of embedded in our everyday life. So that for me is a very hopeful message for people that are struggling to find meaning. Amazing. I really appreciate that. And before we jump into our final two questions, um, I noticed on Twitter, a good friend of this podcast, Jonathan Paggio, uh, tweeting about this book. I, I 
just on a personal level, I'd love to know what what reception have you felt from you know people like Jonathan as as maybe Jordan reached out? Is there anything? Uh, what's the reception been like since you uh, put it out there? Yeah, it, it's been very positive actually. So I was on uh, I recorded with Jordan Peterson a podcast with him uh, about two weeks ago, and wow. so it's not released yet. It'll be out, he said, in November or December. And yeah, he read the book and he was, it was great. We had a, a two hour and 15 minute conversation about it. So it seems like he, you know, wanted to talk about themes and issues in the book. So I was really grateful to him that he made time to do that. And with Jonathan, actually, I, I have a scheduled podcast for him coming up in a couple of weeks. So I was very grateful to both Jordan and Jonathan for providing endorsements on the back of the book, you know, from them. So that was really, you know, that was very kind of them and very generous of them. So I'm happy about that. And then in terms of other reception, yeah, there's already uh, almost 60 reviews on Amazon of the book and almost all of them are very positive. And so I've heard lots of really great things about it. So I'm, I'm really happy about that. Amazing. So when you recorded with Jordan, is that um, going to be released on his platform, the Jordan Peterson podcast? It is. Yes. Yes. And he said uh, basically in a couple of months. Amazing. Well, I really yeah. look forward to that. I, I listened to all of Jordan's podcast, so can't wait to see you on there. Um, and I <laughs> hope it, you know, I hope it does a lot of good for yourself and the message you're putting out there and, and, and brings more attention that the book deserves. So really looking forward to that. Great. Uh, thank you. The final two questions I have for you then. Uh, we've talked a lot today about your book. I have it right here. I want to just pay uh, tribute to whoever designed the cover. I'm not sure who designed it, but I think it's a, it's a lovely cover. I really like it. Um, so this book's going to impact a lot of people. I know it is, but for you, uh, barring the, the big obvious one, um, what books have you read throughout your life that have had a big impact on yourself? Wow. That that's a hard question. Um, there are so many books. So I would say one of them though, is Aristotle's Nicomachean ethics. Mm -hmm. It is an unbelievably rich book. And if you haven't read it before, it's, it's absolutely terrific. And I read it not every year, but almost every year. And it's it just filled with wisdom about happiness, about growing, about courage, about how to live a good life, how to make friends, how to keep friends. What is friendship? I mean, it is an absolutely terrific book. Um, one more book I'll mention, another complete classic is Dante's Divine Comedy. I don't know if you've, if you've read it now, but right now around the world, there's this hundred days of Dante where people all over the world are reading the Divine Comedy. And I've read it I think four or five times, but I'm rereading it now. And oh my gosh, I mean, it is a terrific book. It's, it's a story about a man who journeys into hell and he goes all the way down into the depths of hell, further and further, going to the very bottom of hell. And then that's all book one. Book two is his journey up the mountain of purgatory. So he goes through purgatory, meets all these sinners and they're trying to purify themselves and move in the right direction. And then the third book is all about his journey into heaven. And so he is going through heaven and it is unbelievably rich. It's filled with dramatic and surprising imagery and his encounters with all these figures from Greek mythology and Roman mythology, his encounter encounters with great saints and great sinners. Uh, he's led through this journey by the poet Virgil. So anyway, if you've never read Dante's divine comedy, uh, now is the time because everyone around the world is reading it. And this is the 700th anniversary of Dante's death. And that is an all time classic. I mean, really, if I'm on a desert island, I'm taking Aristotle's Nicomachean ethics, 
I'm taking the Bible and I'm taking Dante's Divine Comedy. I mean, these are these are inexhaustible works. So uh, total classics. Love it. Well, this isn't my final question. It's just a bit of a segue. But since you mentioned that you you love a philosophy, I just wonder what sort of um, what philosophies you favorite. Like I'm a big I'm a big uh, Stoic. Uh, read I love reading um, stoicism you know shortness of life by Seneca yeah your meditations I love uh, stoic philosophy what are some of your favorites yeah I love stoic philosophy too um, I just reread uh, the meditations mm. recently during COVID I thought this is a perfect time to, yeah. to read through it and I know I love stoic philosophy so much um, I love Aristotle I love Plato Plato is absolutely terrific um, you know think of his dialogues of Gorgias or the Crito I mean, they're just, they're absolutely wonderful. Uh, but as much as I love them, and I love Immanuel Kant too, but as much as I love all these philosophers, my absolute favorite is Thomas Aquinas. Mm. I mean, he is unbelievably intelligent. I mean, it's like, it's, he's hard though. He's hard. So it's a little bit like this. If you, um, I don't know, do you, I don't know if you've ever drank like whiskey before. You ever have whiskey? I've never actually drank alcohol before, but I can, okay, try, never had alcohol. I can try and reason with you. Yeah. Okay. Well, anyway, if you drink alcohol, you'll know that whiskey is kind of uh, bitter and not very tasty. Yeah, basically. Yeah, yeah. So if, if, and Thomas Aquinas is a little bit like that in the sense of it takes a while to get used to it and kind of acclimate to it. But yeah. if you put in the time and effort that's needed to really, you know, get into it, uh, he is an unbelievably powerful mind. And he really brings together all these different sources like Stoic philosophy, Islamic philosophy, Christian wisdom. He just brings them all together mm -hmm. in this super interesting kind of combination. So if you want, um, I actually have online, if you go to uh, either my own YouTube channel or if you go to Catholic Thinkers, I have a kind of series on Thomas Aquinas on God. So if you want to check that out, you know, you're welcome to check it out and see what you think. Kind of his arguments for God's existence and then his arguments about God's intelligence and God's will and things like that. But for my money, I, as much as I love Stoic philosophy and Plato and Aristotle and Kant, my all-time favorite is Thomas Aquinas. I mean, he, he's uh, unbelievable, unbelievable. So anyway, that, that's, at the end of the day, that's, that's my uh, most favorite. Yeah, well, I'll link those uh, links you mentioned in the, in the bio below for everyone to check out. Oh, great. Um, yeah, I'm not sure about whiskey, but people tell me that uh, olives take a while to get into. So maybe there's one for the teetotal people out there who want to. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so my my final question to you, and the answer to this can be anything. It could be, you know, it could be your faith. It could be your family. It could be your friends. It could be your writing, uh, your profession, anything. But for you, Christopher Kazel, right now, what makes a life worth living? I would say love. Mm -hmm. And for me, love of God and love of neighbor and love of neighbor for me is in particular love of my wife and my own children that, and then my friends and, and so forth. But that for me is the most important. Like, I think, you know, if I lacked love of God and love of my family and friends and love of neighbor, I would be completely miserable. I would just be, it would be awful. I, I don't even want to think about what my life would be like because it would be, you know, just like tearing my guts out or something. If, if all, if I had hatred for all those, all those things, it would be just absolutely awful. So for me at the end of the end of the line uh, it's all about love. Beautifully put. So, well, we've talked about it today. 
for an hour. Let everyone know who's listening where they can find more about yourself and where they can check out and maybe buy a copy of the book. Sure. So the book's sold uh, everywhere where books are sold, but uh, sometimes they're sold out at some of those places. So the best place might be wordonfire.com, which has, they kind of get the books first. So that might be best for the book. And then I'm on Twitter, Professor underscore Kayser or Prof Kayser. And then I'm on um, YouTube also, Christopher Kayser. So yeah, if people want to reach out and check that out, that'd be great. Amazing. Well, I'll make sure all that is linked in the description below. Uh, Christopher, thank you so, so much for coming on. It's been an absolute pleasure to speak with you. I thoroughly enjoyed the book. I thank you for forwarding that to me as well. And I look forward to hearing more from you and your appearance on the Jordan Peterson podcast. I'm really excited. So thank you for coming on. I'm really grateful for your time. Great. Thank you very much. I really enjoyed talking to you too.